Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. We didn't, do a, we didn't read through the text this morning, and there's a reason for that. We're in the middle of this fourth vision. We're walking through the book of Daniel. Very historical, chapters 1 through 6. And then chapter 7 on, there's, it's apocalyptic literature. Visions, there's four visions that we see God gave Daniel about the future, future, future to Daniel, right? Not necessarily future for us, although we'll get into some of that next week. We're going to look at chapter 11 through, probably get through verse 35, uh, and then pick up the, and finish Daniel next week. And it's going to, as we teach through chapter 11, it's going to sound a little bit like a history lesson. That's what it is. Um, we're going to look at kingdoms changing hands and wars being fought. You may even find yourself losing track of which king is doing what. That's why I put a little insert in your worship guide. That may help you some. And, you know, we, we're walking through these books, and I'll just tell you, I've said this several times. If you read ahead, like read through it a few times and just kind of think through the text, that'll help you as we, as we walk through it. I encourage you to do that week in and week out. And you may at some point during this next, uh, you know, 45 minutes or so, find yourself saying, why do we need to know all of this? What is the point? Well, there is a point, a main point that we'll get to. But one thing is it's in Scripture, and it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible. It's God's revelation to us, his church. What's happening here is that the, the angel that we saw last week approached Daniel. If you remember, he prayed, and upon him praying, the Lord sent an angel. But he was late in coming, three weeks late, right? Because as we saw last week, God kind of opened up the curtain and allowed Daniel to see the spiritual realm and what's going on in the heavenlies. And as he saw this angelic being, he did what we'll do, right? We fell on his face and took his breath away and all of those things. He was very humbled. Even though Daniel was already a humbled man, he was very humbled by this angelic being. We'll start in verse 1. What's going to happen is this angel is going to show Daniel about 400 years of history in advance. Right? I think it's probably the most specific, detailed prophecy in all of Scripture. This angel is going to give reference to the Persian king who followed Cyrus, Darius extending through the Greek emperor Alexander the Great, and his successors. We're going to have this detailed summary of the ongoing conflict between the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemaic dynasties in the south. And of course, he's going to spend a great deal of time talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. And I've studied a large part of my life. I've spent time in the classroom. I've taught. I've been in high school classrooms. I've been in the college classroom. And I think I know what it takes to be a good teacher, and I also know what it means to be lacking in that area as well. And the ones that are lacking would do what some of you, and you think about horrible teachers, you're in science and you have to read, all the, all the students are just reading through, taking turns reading through the chapter, 
right, in your science tech book. That's a, one of those horrible teachers, right? Well, we're going to do that exact thing this morning. That's the reason I didn't have you read the text. We didn't read the teaching text ahead of time like we normally do because we're going to read through it, and then I'm going to um, just kind of point out, give specifics, uh, names to the, the pronouns and titles that are given to us uh, in Daniel chapter 11. So first thing we see, verses 1 through 2, the, the kings of Persia. Notice in verse 1, And as for me, this is the angel, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and to strengthen him. And we said last week that the, the angels, they have a, a heavenly ministry, but some have an earthly ministry, and this one did indeed. And now this angel will show Daniel what is to come. Look at verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. And, and I'll say this. To pause for a second. If you don't open up your Bible and you don't read, this is going to be painful. It might be painful anyway. Uh, this is really difficult. Not a difficult passage. Uh, there's some, the end of it's a little bit difficult. We've, we've already looked at difficult passages, right? Chapter 7, chapter 9. But this passage, if you're not reading along with me, it's going to be a painful 40 minutes for you. So you got a Black Pew Bible, turn there, page eight, uh, 89, and read along with us, and I'll, I'll, I'll help us as we go. And if you, don't, if you don't like what you get here, then blame Morgan. He had an opportunity to preach today, and he didn't take me up on that offer. So blame Morgan if this is painful. But um, just like I used to tell my kids when they were getting a shot, they say, Daddy, is it going to hurt? I said, yep. Guaranteed it's going to hurt, but only just for a short time, right? It won't, it won't hurt forever, right? It's okay. Verse 2, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Three more kings shall arise in Persia after Darius, Cambyses, Smyrdas, and Darius the first, those are the kings that came after. And one that's going to rise up, Xerxes the first, will gain far more riches than all of them, right? He's going to go against the, the kingdom of Greece. This is Ahasuerus from Esther. If you read the book of Esther, if you watch the movie, if you read the book, this is the king during the time of Esther. This is Xerxes the first, right? He's become really, really rich, far richer than those that preceded him. But he's going to attack the kingdom of Greece. The Persians see the Greek; um, they see the Greek kingdom growing, and so he goes on the attack, and he crosses a place called the Hellespont. It's uh, known now as the Dardanelles, and it's uh, uh, the Aegean Sea, the Sea of Marmara. Uh, it's a short strait there. He crossed and he attacked them, but he was defeated by the Greeks. He was driven back home. And the Greeks never forgot it. That's going to come back to get the Persians. The second kingdom we see in verses 3 and following is the Greek Empire. We'll see Alexander mentioned here and then the Ptolemies and Seleucids. Pick up in verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Can you guess who the mighty king is here? Think about Greek Empire. That's Alexander the Great, right? That's an easy one. And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. That's, you're going to understand that, right? Because Alexander the Great, he was a great um, 
ruler. He conquered the world in a very short amount of time, 11 to 12 years. He conquered the known world. In fact, it is said that after he conquered all the nations, he fell on his bed and cried, wept like a child, because there was no one else to conquer. But he died at the age of 32. His kingdom shall be broken and divided, but not to his posterity. That's, a, that's an interesting word. Any students, you know, any have any idea what that means? Yeah, I didn't either. It doesn't go to his descendants. His sons, he had two sons. One was illegitimate, one was legitimate. They both were assassinated. So um, his empire was divided among his four generals. We talked about that already, right, um, in um, chapter 7, chapter 8. So the Greek empire is divided up as follows. Here's the, the four generals, the four um, parts, Seleucus. Every time you see Seleucid or Seleucid, think of Syria, think of the north. We're going to focus on them a lot. Ptolemy is the king of the south. It's in Egypt. Lysacomus is king of the east. And Cassander is the west. Okay, We're going to focus primarily uh, on uh, the, the king of the south and the king of the north. Now, these two verses, it's interesting. Verses 3 and 4 speak of the greatest Greek emperor uh, that was ever known two verses, but the rest of the chapter is going to focus on his successors. That's interesting. Now, starting in verse 5 through 20, there, it looks kind of like a travelogue. These verses, they contain a history of the ongoing conflict between two of these divisions. The Ptolemaic kingdom in the south, that's Egypt. If you, in your mind's eye, if you think about the Middle East, you think of Egypt, right? North Africa, and you have the Middle East. You have Israel, and then to the north is Syria. So you're going to see Ptolemy or Ptolemaic. That's the Greek uh, leader of Egypt, the southern kingdom. If you see the word Antiochus or Seleucid, that means Syrian or northern kingdom. So you're going to hear those over and over again. And what happens uh, if you know much about history is uh, you're going to have Ptolemy the first, Ptolemy the second, Ptolemy the third, and the one that comes after Ptolemy the third is what? Ptolemy the fourth. That's the way they just did their thing, right? And you're going to see that also in, in the north. Seleucid the first, Seleucid the second, same. That's what you'll see over and over again. So you have the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south, and they're at war with one another. And what they're trying to do is they're, they're trying to become the king of the hill. So you'll have the king of the north traveling down the south and attacking Egypt. You have the king of Egypt, Ptolemaic king. He's going to travel up north and attack the Seleucid king in the, in, in the north. So why do we have all this information about these battles and these wars? Well, guess who's called in the middle? Yeah, it's the promised land. Israel, Palestine, Jerusalem. So a lot of these battles that take place are actually taking place on their soil in the promised land. Okay. So two verses given Alexander and the rest of these verses to his successors. If you think, well, who's the most important Greek emperor, you would say, beyond a shout of doubt, it's Alexander the Great. But for God's purposes... 
he wasn't the most important. And this is why, if you remember in chapter 8, you remember the, the vision of the ram, that's the Persian Empire, and the, and the vision of the goat, the Greek Empire. And you remember what happened to the goat? It attacked the ram, and no one could help the poor ram. As you see this picture of this goat attacking the ram and doing it under, and no one could help because the goat was Alexander the Great, and he was powerful, and he was mighty, and no one could stop him. You think about Alexander when he came to Jerusalem. Do you remember that story we talked about from history? Josephus gives that account. He didn't besiege the city. It didn't destroy the city like many others tried to do. But his visit included a briefing by the high priest of the book of Daniel. Here, Alexander, read this. It foretold of the rise of none other than Alexander the Great. Josephus writes, And when the book of Daniel was shown him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he, meaning Alexander, supposed that himself was the person intended. And as he was then glad, he dismissed the multitude for the present. Alexander and his accomplishments had an effect on Judah for sure, but not like his successors would. God is concerned, of course, with all of history, right? He's sovereign over history, every event of history. But God is communicating to Daniel that he is most concerned with the history of his people. So let's look at verses 5 and 6. Then the king of the south shall be strong. Anytime you see king of the south, think of Ptolemaic kings, right, there in Egypt. The king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and, he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and his, his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her, in those times, the king of the south shall be strong. That was the Ptolemy the first, that's also known as Soter. He's going to be strong. The prince of the north, Seleucid Nicator, he's going to be weaker. But over time, that will change. Ptolemy Soter and this Seleucid king, Nicator, will form an alliance. A treaty is going to be made between the two. They're warring against one another, but there's going to be a treaty. The daughter of the king of the south, Berenice, is going to be given to the grandson of the king of the north. I mean, how, what better way to bring two families together? Let's get some of our kids married off, right? That'll make things better. But it says she'll not retain her position of power in the strength of the arm. Well, that's because, oh, Theos, he was already married. It's like a soap opera. Jerry Springer, many years ago. So Theos put his wife, Laodicea, aside. He divorced her. Put her away when Berenice came to town. This Egyptian princess then lost her life. At whose hand, you think? Laodicea killed her. So much for treaties, huh? And then guess what happens? The stupidest 
move ever. Antiochus Theos, he put his ex-wife back on the throne. She became the queen once again until he was poisoned. Guess who poisoned him? Yep, the angry ex-wife. She then put her son, Callinicus, on the throne. Look at verse 7 through 9. A lot of things going on in history here. And from a branch from a root, one shall rise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. From a, a branch, from her roots, Berenice, one shall arise. Ptolemy third. This is Berenice's brother. He's going to rise in Soter's place, and he's going to come against Seleucus in retaliation for the murder of his sister. And Seleucus is going to be defeated. And they're fighting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And guess who's caught in the middle? Yep, God's people. Look at verse 10. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and with abundant supplies. Well, there's a new king in the north, Seleucid, Seronesis, and Antiochus III. These are two sons of the previous king. They're going to assemble a great army. And they're going to come and they're going to pass through, overflowing and coming through. Passing through what? Passing through Palestine, the promised land. They're going to wage war. But the king of the south is going to win. He's going to attack. He's going to win a great victory. This Ptolemaic Victory is going to be helpful, but it's not going to last very long. From verses 13 through 35, what you're going to see is this Seleucid dominance. The kings of the north are going to dominate the kings of the south. Look at verse 14. Many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. So you have Antiochus III, who's the king of the north. He's going to have some insurrectionists in Egypt. They're going to rise up. Also, some violent ones among your own people. That's some apostate Jews. They're actually going to help. The kings of the north attack the Ptolemaic kings and aid Antiochus. Look at verse 15 and 16. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. That was Sidon. It was an Egyptian-fortified city. This is Antiochus III. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. Verse 16, but he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land. Glorious land, what do you think that's talking about? That's Israel, right? Yeah, and the, the, the promised land, right? With destruction in his hand. 
Verse 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the, the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. You see this giving of daughters a lot, don't you? Antiochus III, he tried to bolster his control of Egypt by giving his daughter. Her name was Cleopatra. It's not the Cleopatra you're thinking about, Mark Antony. That's not yet. That won't happen until about 60 B.C. Cleopatra is a title. We keep talking about the Ptolemaic kings, Ptolemy I, Ptolemy II. Well, that was for the king. Cleopatra was a title given to a queen. This is the first Cleopatra. Antiochus III gave his daughter to the Egyptian king, thinking it's going to help his cause, but it actually didn't. In fact, Cleopatra became very loyal to her husband. Look at verse 18 and 19. Antiochus the Great then turned his attention towards the coastlands. That's Greece, the islands in the Mediterranean Sea. But he was defeated by an up-and-coming force, the new kid on the block. That was the Roman army. A commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. So he was defeated, Alexander the Great, and he was embarrassed. In fact, he was not just defeated, but the Roman army made him begin to give tribute. So he became a vassal state to the Romans. This is begin to see the, the, the rise of the Roman Empire. In verse 19, after this, he will turn back toward the fortress of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. So Antiochus III, he... he um, he, on his way back home, he's got to pay taxes to the Romans now, so he tries to rob a temple on his way back home. Those that guarding the temple attacked, and he was actually killed and was seen no more. Verse 20, Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. This is Seleucus IV. He sends a, a tax collector, if you will. Heliodorus. He's a tax collector. And guess where he goes to, to find some money to pay off the, the Romans? He went to Jerusalem. And he attempted to pillage the treasury of Jerusalem to pay for his father's debt. But then his tax collector turned on him and he was poisoned by his tax collector. You say, all these kings, one's coming, one's going. Well, we said that from the very beginning, right? One thing we learned in the book of Daniel is kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of God endures forever. Kings come and go, but God's king remains forever. Isaiah chapter 40, we see that, verses 23 and 24. Who brings princes, God brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, right? And they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. What's this teaching us? God is sovereign. He's sovereign over history. He sets up kings. He puts them under, removes them. That gets us to verse 21, and we see Antiochus Epiphanes. In his place, this is Seleucus IV, shall raise, Seleucus III shall raise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. We talked a lot about him from chapter 8. He's a little horn in chapter 8. You remember he was given so much attention because he caused so much grief to Israel. Antiochus III... His 
young son, Demetrius, was next in line to receive the crown. But Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, captured the throne. When, when his father, Antiochus' father, was defeated by the Romans, Epiphanes and 19 others were taken captive. But eventually, Epiphanes escaped and he returned home to find his brother had been crowned king. And he came back as a long-lost brother who arrived to help his, his brother secure his kingdom. But eventually, Epiphanes' brother was killed. He was poisoned by the tax collector. Guess who was responsible for that? Yep, Antiochus Epiphanes. Nice guy, huh? His name actually means Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the manifestation of God. One like God. He's not only creepy, creepily wicked, but he's also humble, right? He named himself the image of God. Look at verse 22 to 24. Army shall be utterly swept away before him, before Antiochus Epiphanes, and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. See, Antiochus Epiphanes was a contemptible person. He has influence not only Syria, but also in Israel at this time. He's a conniver. He's a player. And he gets usually his way. He was very ambitious. Look at verse 25. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Antiochus Epiphanes was always itching for a fight, wanting to expand his empire. And the king of the south gave him opportunity. He attacked him, and he, the Ptolemaic king was defeated. When the Ptolemaic king was defeated. He, he's called a prince of the covenant because he was taken as a prisoner of war and he agreed to become an ally of Antiochus Epiphanes if Epiphanes would help him regain his throne in Egypt who had been taken over, of course, by his younger brother. And what happened, history books tell us that this plot weakened the Egyptian kingdom. So you have Ptolemy the sixth and Ptolemy the seventh were both ruling Egypt at the end of this in different cities, and it weakened their position and allowed Antiochus Epiphanes to do whatever he wanted to do. So he returns to Syria. Let's look at verse 28. Returning home with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. What do you think the holy covenant is referring to? Yeah, God's people, right? Those in the promised land. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. Well, when Antiochus Epiphanes was in Egypt fighting this last battle, winning this last battle, there were false reports in Jerusalem that Epiphanes had been killed in battle. So they're having parades. They're excited. Everybody's excited, cheering. Well, 
Epiphanes hears about this, and on his way home, he just stops by Jerusalem, and he took out his anger upon them. His heart shall be set against the Holy Covenant, and he shall work his will. We're told in the Apocrypha, 2 Maccabees chapter 5, this is not inerrant, infallible scripture. It's just history, right? But we can learn a lot from it. It says this, When news of what had happened reached the king, he took it to mean that Judea was in revolt. So raging inwardly, he left Egypt and took the city by storm. He commanded his soldiers to cut down relentlessly everyone they met and to kill those who went into their houses. Then there was a massacre of young and old, destruction of boys, women, and children, and slaughter of young girls and infants. Within the total of three days, 80,000 Jews were destroyed, 40,000 in hand-to-hand fighting, and as many were sold into slavery as were killed. So we see Antiochus Epiphanes mistreating God's people. Look at verse 29. At that time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be like this time as it was before. So he makes another attack on the king of the south there in Egypt. And verse 30 tells us how he did not get the victory. What was the cause of his defeat? Verse 40, for ships of Kittim, Kittim is the um, modern-day Cyprus, shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdrawal, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. Let me tell you what happens here. When he invaded Egypt, this navy um, was a Roman navy, and they had come to the aid of the Ptolemies, those in Egypt. Stephen Miller, he's a commentator, writes this. The Roman commander met Antiochus four miles outside the city and handed him a letter from the Roman Senate ordering him to leave Egypt or face war with Rome. Then the Roman commander drew a circle in the sand around him and told him he has to answer and respond whether he's going to do that or not before he leaves that circle. The Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, stood in humiliated silence. And then he gave in to the demands. He then withdrew from Egypt, going back home in utter humiliation. But guess where he's got to pass through on the way home? He got to pass right by Jerusalem. So what does he do? He takes out his anger against the people of God. He sent one of his mercenaries as the chief collector of tribute to Jerusalem. At first, this guy pretended to be peaceful, but on the Sabbath day, he suddenly attacked, killing many people and plundering the city. Look at verse 30. Oh, I'm sorry, verse um, verse 30. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. And this is where we've studied in chapter 8, this is where the the temple was desecrated. Remember that unclean animals were sacrificed. Um, Epiphanes wanted to Hellenize the Jews. He forbade them from keeping the covenant, keeping the law, from circumcising their baby boys. They couldn't have a copy of the scriptures. He forbid them from celebrating their feast. So the temple was left empty of worshipers of God and was filled with worshipers of false gods. And many in Israel stood firm and resolved to fight back. 
they chose to die rather than to be defiled by unclean food or profane the, the Lord's name. And many did die. Among the resistors to Antioch's blasphemous policies were the Maccabees. Look at verse 32 through 35. This is the fourth point. The Maccabees. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. See, even among God's people, there were some who were, who were siding with Epiphanes. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. This is the Maccabees, right? They were God-fearing people. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. There was a priest. He lived about 17 miles outside of Jerusalem. Mattathias. He was faithful. He was righteous. And he had five sons. And three of his sons were named Judas, Jonathan, and Simon. They became known as the Maccabees. Heard of the Maccabean Rebellion. Judas was the leader of them all. He was called the Hammer. Maccabees means hammer. Judas the Hammer. And they battled against... Epiphanes and the kings of the north, they um, had a lot of guerrilla warfare tactics, and they, in the end, they actually defeated Epiphanes, and the temple was cleansed December 14th, 164 B.C., and it's interesting. Verse 33, it says, they, they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. They, God's people were heavily persecuted by Epiphanes. They lost their property and many lost their lives. Look at verse 35. Some of the wise will stumble, right? See the same expression you see in verse 33. The believers, though who love the Lord, will suffer persecution because of their faith. But... We, we see many stepping up. The Maccabees who were thought much of in Jewish culture even today because of their bravery and their zeal for the Lord. We read this and we're looking back. These are things that happened in the past, but Daniel's reading this and it's, this is 375 years in the future. But you see all these specific details of all these people and all these events that God is foretelling about. What do we do with this now in the new covenant? A couple of things. I think, firstly, we, we have to recognize that God knows all things. He's omniscient. God's not bound by time. He sees history in advance. He's sovereign over history. He knows the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46, 9, 10. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. In what way? Huh? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Who can predict the future but God alone? God knows the future. He knows, he knew Israel's future, Daniel's future, 
but he also knows our future. So something we need to remember. Secondly, you remember chapter 10, what is Daniel doing? He's fasting and he's praying, right? Interceding for God's people. And God, I think, giving him this vision, letting him see what's to come is, what is he doing? What do you think this, what do you think this is going to cause Daniel to do? Kalen, he's praying, he's fasting for his people. Remember, Daniel is, is left behind. About 50,000 Israelites had left Babylon, returned to Jerusalem where the city is being rebuilt, the temple's being rebuilt. He's praying, he's fasting, probably because work on the temple had stopped. So he's fasting and praying for three weeks, right? So when he hears or sees this vision, the angel gives him the vision. And he understands what's to come. What do you think that calls Daniel to do? You think he prayed less because now he knows what's going to happen? No, he prays more. So for us, we need to pray not just for one another. We need to pray for the church in general because the church is being persecuted even today. You understand that? There's people today that are suffering because of their faith. We live in the land of heat and air. It's Memorial Day. We've had so many people give their lives so that we could be free, worship as we want. Most places in the world, that's not the case. May we be a praying people. May this reading of prophecy encourage us to, to pray for the, the church, and not just here in our church, but all over the world. I think thirdly, we have to remember prophecy isn't just a foretelling of future events. It's God foretelling these events to come, but also helping us understand things from God's perspective. Again, Alexander the Great, He's the greatest Greek emperor. But yet he's given two verses. Because from God's perspective, these other Seleucid and Ptolemaic kings are more important. These events are more important because it affects God's people more intensely. So one thing I think we should do is read the scriptures and understand the scriptures. Understand God's perspective on all things. Fourthly, you see, Antiochus Epiphanes, he keeps talking about all throughout this, those, those um, Jewish apostates, those who helped Epiphanes uh, get a foothold there in the city. He was very conniving, very deceitful, but he had those that were all throughout this, this chapter, those Israelites, those Jews who were helping him all along the way. And, and as a result of that, he was able to get a foothold and use that to destroy the people for a time. I think doctrinal, moral, spiritual compromise with the world is how churches are destroyed. Churches become inept because of compromise. The world is preaching Continually, messages for us to compromise and forsake the truth we know. But I think another thing we can learn is that we need to be determined, just like the Maccabees, not to compromise doctrinally or morally or spiritually with the ways of the world. And maybe lastly, if you're here speaking about God knowing the future, he does know all things, past, present, and future. He sees all things. There's nothing hidden from his sight. He's omniscient. 
So that means he knows you and he knows your sin. He knows your sorrows. He knows your joys. He knows your hurts, but he knows your sin. You think, well, you know, my sin won't find me out, but it's already been found out. In fact, God doesn't know just what you've done in the past, what you're going to do today. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow and the next day. He knows all your days and all that you'll do. So while mercy can be found, my encouragement to you, exhorting you to repent, turn from your sin, and trust what Christ did on the cross as, for, as your own. Be saved today. Let's pray. I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up. We'll, we'll pick up here, verse 36, next, next week, and we'll finish out Daniel. Okay. Thanks for hanging in there. Expository preaching sometimes is difficult because you have difficult texts. It's not real fun to preach. But we need to understand the main point of that text is this, uh, these events are affecting the people of God. Persecution is coming. Daniel needs to pray. God knows all things, past, present, and future. Let's pray, and we'll sing, and that'll be our benediction. Father, we're acknowledging that you are good in, in every way. You're um, seeing all things. Our vision is clouded, and we can only see what's before us, but you see all things, and we're thankful for your word, for your reminding us that you know all things and see all things. Father, we are acknowledging that you love your people. And given Daniel a warning, warning the nation of what's to come, and they endured much. And in fact, your people, the church, is enduring much today. And we think about those in Sudan. We think about those that are suffering there in South Asia and East Asia and people who are hurting because they love you, but those in their communities don't. Some are going to lose their lives today because they love you. And we're asking that you would help them persevere in their faith. Father, may we be a praying church, a church that's burdened for those who are yours but are hurting. Father, there's some pastors, some Christian workers who are in prison today in hard places and not sure of their future. And they're in prison because they love you and have been propagating the gospel that can change lives. So we pray for all those who are incarcerated and who are unsure of their future. May you press upon them that you are sovereign and you know their future. And you would help them persevere so that they would be with you. For all eternity, giving praise and honor and glory to one who is worthy. Father, help us to study your word and understand things from your perspective. Father, help us not to compromise. Lord, help us not to let down our guard and compromise. Let's have integrity doctrinally, morally, in every way. And Father, for the lost that are here, those that are maybe children or students or adults who listen to a really dry sermon. But I pray that you would help them to know that you love them despite their sin. You see it. You see all their sin, but yet you still love them. Father, may you help them see your goodness 
May you grant them faith and repentance today that they could call you Father and trust you with their whole heart. Thankful for your word, Father. What a blessing. For all of our people that are out and about traveling this weekend, may you give them travel mercies. May you give them grace. Father, may they think of you today often and draw near to you in prayer. May they be keep short accounts of their sin. Father, those that are in their sphere of influence even today and tomorrow, may you use them to be salt and light. In Jesus' name, amen.